This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to the Bunker Daily with me, Nina Schick. As regular listeners know, I am very interested in digital disinformation, fakery, and information warfare. I've just published a book, Deepfakes and the Apocalypse, on this subject. Disinformation is the key battleground of the 21st century. Russia is using it to devalue and discredit the democratic revolution in Belarus. And with the U.S. presidential election coming soon, there is little sign that the American authorities have taken much meaningful action to prevent an assault on their electoral democracy from Russia, China, and other malignant actors. In the age of information, disinformation extends far beyond politics, affecting every business and private citizen too. My guest today is equally concerned about information pollution and the distortion of democracy. Matthew Ferraro is a former U.S. intelligence officer and now a lawyer who advises on defense and cybersecurity. He's also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and a prolific writer on disinformation. He joins me now from Washington, D.C. Hello, Matthew. How are things there? Wonderful. Great to be with you. Is the pre-election atmosphere as febrile as it looks across the pond to us? Yes. Yes, it is. Things are wall-to-wall election coverage, election concerns. We are, I think, all excited for this to be over for a number of reasons. And one is for this sort of uh, fervid time, as you say, to, to be passed, if in fact it ever will be. Yeah, I think that's the question, right? What happens after the election? But uh, thank you. Firstly, you have a fascinating background and you're a former U.S. intelligence officer. Are you allowed to tell us anything about your assignments and how you came to do this kind of work? Uh, sure, I could, I could talk uh, this, about, about some of it. I was never um, undercover. I never used a, a pseudonym. So I was always in what's called true name. So that means that I can talk a bit more about it. So yeah, no, I, and I, I first entered what we call the intelligence community. I worked for someone called the Director of National Intelligence when that office was first created. And then I worked on policy, so intelligence intelligence policy and dealt a lot with information operations and concerns we had about those sorts of things. Also dealt a lot with the idea of sharing information, both internally within our intelligence enterprise and also with our partners. I did a lot of work with, uh, with MI6 and with the good people over in the UK. And, um, and then I did some work. I, I moved agencies and I headed over to the CIA and I did work in the sort of counterproliferation space about we- weapons of mass destruction. And of course, we now find ourselves with a different kind of weapon mm-hmm. of mass destruction. And in, in, uh, we use so uh, artfully term the infocalypse, the sort of the, the, the infodemic that seems to consume us all. When did you first become aware of, if you will, um, this kind of infodemic, this corrosion of our information ecosystem? Um, were they on the radar of the intelligence agencies? you were working at, or were they just not conceptually framed as such? It's a a good question. I mean, I think that the United States, especially the Soviet Union, were concerned about information operations for a very long time. This is the shaping of the 
of the battle space, information battle space. And you discuss it really quite wonderfully in your book uh, around um, Operation Infection and the AIDS crisis and all of that. And of course, it predates all of that to the to the uh, I think it was the 1947 election in Italy that saw you know massive uh, efforts on the Russian side, the Soviet side, and some corresponding efforts on the U.S. side to shape a post-war election there and uh, to help ensure the the victory of a, of a non-communist candidate. So th- th- I think the, the idea of information in the battle space is longstanding, but I think what's changed now is the democratization of these, of these dangers and the fact that it can spread with such speed at such scale with, with such v- veracity in the media uh, that is spread uh, that I think has really changed the ballgame. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of when did I first become aware of that, I guess perhaps three or four years ago uh, with an old colleague of mine from CIA, I wrote a piece about Russian disinformation in the election. And our basic takeaway was that this requires you know, understanding uh, one's, the, the disinformation that one receives online and parsing the wheat from the chaff requires critical thinking. And we sort of posited that we actually, as a society, as an institution and government, have experience teaching critical thinking uh, largely in our analytic core, in our intelligence agencies. And really what we needed to do is we said, you know, to fight back against Russian propaganda, you have to learn to think like a spy. That was our sort of tagline. And we talked about analytical thinking. And then as I did that, uh, as you noted, I had I, by that point moved into the private sector relatively late in life. I was 35 years old when I joined the private sector. And, uh, and I realized that, gee, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? I mean, the, the, the concerns that we have about disinformation in politics and in elections very much holds true for, for businesses as well. And that's when I started to, to sort of develop my thinking um, and writing on that, on that topic and counseling clients on that as well. Yeah. And I mean, Matthew, for listeners, Matthew has written kind of very prolifically about and very eloquently about how the kind of crisis of information is something, you know, we still tend to think about as being in the realm of the geopolitical politics, but it is something that is desperately attention is needed to how it affects uh, businesses and the private sector as well. So Matthew um, is a leading kind of figure on that. But just to go back to your intelligence background, Mm -hmm. A certain kind of person would say, you know, you're a former former intelligence officer and we can't trust what you say about this. Okay. And juxtaposing that to what seems to be happening in the United States and to a lesser extent here um, in the UK, have intelligence agencies in democratic countries lost legitimacy? And how do you think they can regain it in a world where conspiracy thinking is often the default? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I think that the truth is that it is a unique challenge in democracies, but one that we should welcome, which is to say that how do you balance secrecy and democracy? That's the title of a famous book by a former CIA director named Stansfield Turner. You have to accept that challenge because we have to live in a democracy. Uh, we have to live in a, in a liberal order. At the same time, um, you know, power without knowledge is dangerous. And so you want the United States and you want powerful nations to know what's going on in the world. Um, and, uh, and, I, and the question is, like, how do they you know, gain and sustain legitimacy in sort of a post-Snowden world? There's an active debate about that. I think that transparency is important. I wrote a piece some years ago called Spies Like Us. And I said it's a, it was important for 
the U.S. government to be as open as it can about what it does and doesn't do. And I do think that there's a lot of myth-making with Mission Impossible and James Bond and all of that about yeah. what, uh, what intelligence agencies do. The vast, vast majority of what they do is, is listen, think, and write. You know, and I, Sometimes they listen to phone calls, sometimes they just listen to people. And I do think that, uh, that that's a big part of it. Uh, sort of explaining what we do, what we don't do. I also think this is somewhat under underrated as a, as a benefit. I think more people should work in government, in the federal government in the United States uh, for periods of their life. Uh, I, I wrote another piece about this for Government Executive, which is a government magazine. I'm sure no one actually read it. Um, but the, the, my basic point was that, you know, the, it, it, I used a statistic that had come out. The statistic said that millennials who join government service leave after four years. And, and the thought was, uh, this is a bad thing. That was sort of the, the crux of the report. And I said, you know, not all, not all relationships that last four years and end in a breakup are necessarily bad relationships. And I said, you know, that, that one could come into the government, make a commitment, uh, make an effort, make a contribution to the, to the larger enterprise, leave and go on to do something else with one's life and have a much better understanding of how uh, the national security enterprise works and indeed bring that knowledge with them in whatever career they would go into. So that's, I'm not sure you'd always hear that uh, uh, solution, but I think that's at least part of it. And I will say, of course, it's been a tough four years in the United States. And I say that not politically, I just think almost objectively speaking, um, it's been a very contentious political atmosphere. There's been a lot of cynicism about government. And I do hope that whatever happens in November, we return to some kind of regular order. And I think that's an important way to rebuild trust in our institutions. How likely do you, I mean, if you were to look into your crystal ball, how, how likely do you think the possibility of a regular order, no matter which way the election goes? <laughs> well, the jury is out. You know, I do, I do think that even the 30 years war had to come to an end, right? You know, like I, I do think it's a little European reference for your listeners. I do think that sooner or later, everything changes. Like, I, you know, the, the, the constants of change is the only consistent in history, right? And so sooner or later, populist energy runs out. Uh, sooner or later, uh, the president's shtick uh, of anger at everyone is going to run out, whether that's now or four years from now or whatnot. So I, I suppose it's a bit of a Pollyanna, but, um, but, but as the world turns, uh, things will change. And I do think that's not a recipe for a lackadaisical attitude. I think we, you know, as they say, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. But it is, for, in fact, people who have to bend it. Um, and so I do think it, there, there is a milleristic aspect, an aspect of this, the world gets better with human effort. I'm not too pessimistic. I do think that things can uh, and will return because people will essentially demand it. It appears to me that uh, in order to shore up his legitimacy, it suits you know the president of the United States for there to be no kind of objective reality and it all to become a battle of narratives. Mm. What does that mean to you weeks ahead of the election? And do you fear for kind of the amount of potential homegrown disinformation you might see um, in November and leading up to November as well? Yes, I, mean, I think that this is a real challenge. Uh, there's just no two ways about it. I think I think you're right. I think the president um, is a source of disinformation. Uh, I think that's an objective statement. Um, and, um, and I think a lot of his uh, supporters exist in a different information world than many others. 
And that's, you know, you can, you can see that in terms of where they get their news. Ezra Klein uh, of Vox had a very interesting analysis uh, maybe a couple months ago now, where he just talked about sort of where um, Trump supporters get their news. And it's like, you know, two places, basically, and where to Biden or Democratic supporters are just non-Trump supporters, people who are, you know, not totally in the president's camp get their news. And it was, you know, many more. So there, there is a, a greater variety of, of news. And I think when you have, when you're on a very uh, narrow diet, uh, you're much more likely to fall for disinformation because it's all in this echo chamber and mm-hmm. it's not necessarily validated and it confirms biases and all the rest of it. So am I concerned about it? Yes. I mean, I think, I, I think we learned a lot in 2016. I think we're going to learn a lot in 2020. What's interesting now, I guess to sound something of a hopeful note, is that we're much, much more aware of it. Uh, than we were in 2016, uh, and that that goes from what you know uh, people talk about on the news. So, like there's actually news coverage. Part of the solution here is to peel back the curtain a little bit and to say to some of to, to the viewers and to the listeners, like see what what it's being done, seeing how you're tr- how those people are trying to manipulate mm-hmm. you. I think because people don't like to be chumps, right? Like so, I think that I think that's part of it. Mm-hmm. And then of course there's there's you know social media companies are doing a whole lot more now much more aware of the threat uh you know election a a lot of this will come down of course to the uh election officials and i think they're much more aware now so trying to get the the proper information out there but it's there's there's no doubt this is a tricky period oh yeah Uh, and and we will see how it turns out moving on um to i mean deep fake specifically because you've thought extensively about this and you you know um presented to Senate staff on deepfakes as well. Does the U.S. establishment understand the scope and power of, um, you know, the kind of coming age of synthetic media, in your view? I think they're waking up to it. Um, I mean, of course, I'd love for them to all call me up and ask for more briefings because they need to understand it more. <laughs> um, but I, I do think that they're they're waking up to it. It's interesting because, you know, something you write about in your book is the liar's dividend, you know, the, the concern that as people become more aware of the possibility that media is manipulated, they're going to be uh, more like, it's gonna benefit the liar because they're gonna be able to say, well, you know, even true information is manipulated. I, I think that's a real concern, but I, I don't see any other way. I think you have to raise, one has to raise consciousness of these issues and that indeed is is happening. It's it's um, it's why I write my articles. I know it's it's why you write and speak as well. And I, I think they're, they're waking up to it. I mean, I thought that, you know, the, the fact that I've gotten this outreach from legislatures, I think, is is important. I do think that as the threat democratizes in, in sort of both in all the spheres, but I'm thinking specifically when it comes to like elections, right? Because elected representatives don't want to have to deal with deep fakes in their elections, and then also with the democratization of of uh, non consensual pornography mm-hmm. and the objectification of of women who aren't just celebrities. Uh, I think that also. Uh, causes greater concern. And the, the laws that have been passed in the United States, there are four state laws and one general federal law that was more of a, a research bill. But the ones that have been passed in the U.S., two have to do with protecting elections from deepfakes and two mm-hmm. have to do with, with protecting people from deepfake pornography. And so that those are really the trends. And there are about another 15 bills that are pending across the country. And briefly for your listeners, you know, we have federal laws that are passed by the U.S. Congress and signed by the president that apply to the entire country. But then we have laws that are passed by state legislators and signed by each respective governor. And those, of course, uh, dictate what what behavior is permitted in the states. 
And that is actually where most of the lawmaking happens is at the state level. So those about 15 states are considering various kinds of bills and they fall almost universally into those two categories. Either they deal with elections or they deal with porn. Finally, I suppose I'll just ask you one more question again with your geopolitics hat on. How do you see um, the kind of geopolitics of information warfare, I think you've called it conflict in these kind of gray zones, playing out in the next decade or two decades? And what do you think that means for kind of what already seems to be the demise of the liberal order? How do we come back from that? Big question. <laughs> yeah, big question. So, so I, I do think, you know, if, if you said sort of like what's coming down the pike, I, I think what I have called the next gray zone conflict, which is state-based disinformation against private mm. companies, is likely to rise. And, and that is the use of, by state actors, uh, of disinformation, including deepfakes and other things, against private companies. Uh, and we've started to see that already in what, uh, Russia has targeted in terms of the, the the bogus information they've put out about 5G networks, mm-hmm. which dovetails, of course, well with conspiracy thinking in general. I've, I've said elsewhere that conspiratorial thinking is like water. It, it warps perceptions of everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so people who are concerned about you know health and so forth can find um, a kindred spirits in the Kremlin who want to who want them to go burn down 5G towers um, and be suspicious of them because you know, Russia considers 5G to be a technical area in which they're behind, and that is an area where the U.S. Uh, and China are ahead. And, of course, the, uh, a collateral consequence of that are all the companies that build 5G towers. And so I think you know, that's a concern. Russia's also done that with fracking, with uh, genetically modified uh, agricultural products, and all of that. So I do think that it is going to be a threat, especially as Russia and China well, I should say there's not a lot of evidence of China doing this yet, but I think it's likely you know want to support their national champions, their corporations, uh, vis-a-vis you know U.S. and, and Western corporations. Mm-hmm. So I think that's uh, I think that's a major bucket, um, and I do think that it's all part of this infocalypse, right? Like the you know if the the notion of the, as an uh, information ecosystem, I think is quite apt mm-hmm. because we're all in the ecosystem, yeah. right? So, like you, you, you. If this, if the ecosystem is polluted, it's going to affect politicians, you know, individuals, and of course, of course, businesses as well. And I do think that, you know, there's this is when companies are going to have to step up, work with regulators and the rest to address these ills. And and there are in fact hopeful signs. If we're moving towards an era where photography and videography is a bit more like paintings, where everyone has sort of an impression <laughs> of it, um, then it's going to change how we perceive it, no doubt. But there are solutions, right? I mean, you know, there are, you know, Microsoft just came out with its sort of tool uh, to help defect, uh, detect, rather, Deep. manipulated yeah. media. Uh, and then so if we just become accustomed to relying on tools like that, that's one way to, to counter this, this dangerous threat. And I'll just, I guess I'll end with this. I was thinking through this analogy the other day. I'll test it out on you, Nina. You can tell me if it works. But you know there was a, there was a time when before the uh, the popularity and common use of photography that people had carried with them like letters of introduction, right? Mm-hmm. And it was like uh, this is Matt, you know, he has this background, like welcome into your home, and or you know, appoint him to this position at your university or whatever. And then they would have carry ID cards. There's like old ones from my family from the 19th century where there was no photograph, but there was like a description of what the person was, like his height and his eye color and so forth. And then as photography got more common, we then had photographs in our identification cards, and that was a way of verifying 
their their the person and the identity. And then as technology got better, we now have hol- you know, holographs and, and marks and so thing so so forth on our IDs. And I just think it's it's going to sort of evolve like that. So then we'll have not only will we have those sorts of things, we're going to have some kind of tool that's going to uh, help us understand whether or not the media has been manipulated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that when you open up a LinkedIn photograph and it's um, I'm thinking of the, the Missy Kinsey uh, short seller who was, who was, uh, who was trying to get information on short selling. She was posed as a Bloomberg reporter. It turned out the photograph was a total fake was a, was a GAN created image. You know, you'll look to see, it'll be like the blue check mark, whether or not that photograph has been verified. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I suppose I guess to try to end on a hopeful note, there are antibodies that are created because of disease. And I'm hopeful that some alchemy of society, politics, policy, the private sector, the NGOs, and the intellectual class will help create some kind of antibody that will um, help counter this very dangerous information environment. So we are ending there on a hopeful note. We um, (laughs) don't have to live in this universe of disinformation forever. Matthew Ferraro. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Nina. A real pleasure. And thank you for listening. There's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday with the main panel podcast on Wednesday. You can get a podcast early and without adverts, plus our stylish Bunker merchandise too, when you back us on Patreon. And don't forget our joint live Zoom event with Romaniacs on Thursday, 24th of September for Patreon backers too. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thanks for listening and we'll see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Nina Schick and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Ashbold and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.